Capitulum primum. De malis quaes istinuit exceptitus Francorum in Sclavonia. Illigitur Sclavonia. Chapter 1. On the evils that the army of the Franks sustained in Slavonia. While advancing into the land of Slavonia, they suffered many losses on the way, especially because it was then winter. For Slavonia was such a desert and so pathless and mountainous that we saw in it neither wild animals nor birds for three weeks. The inhabitants of the region were so aggressive and rude that they were unwilling to trade with us or to furnish us guidance but instead fled from their villages and their castles. Indeed, the feeble old women and the weak poor who, because of their weakness, followed the army at a distance, were slaughtered by them like sheep. Nor was it easy amidst the steepness of the mountains and the thickness of the woods for our armed knights to pursue the unarmed brigands who were acquainted with the country. But they suffered them constantly, unable either to fight or to keep from fighting. Let us not pass over a certain illustrious act of the Count. When, for some time, the Count and some of his knights were surrounded by the Slavonians, he made a charge upon them and captured as many as six of them. And when, on this account, the Slavonians pressed upon him more violently than ever, the Count was compelled to follow the army. He ordered the eyes of some of the prisoners to be torn out, the feet of others cut off, and the nose and hands of others to be cut off so that while the pursuers were thus moved at the sight and preoccupied with their sorrow, the Count could safely escape with his companions, and thus, by the grace of God, he was delivered from the straits of death and this difficult situation. Indeed, what courage and wisdom the Count displayed in this region is not easy to relate. For we were in Slavonia for almost 40 days, Amidst all this, the Count was fighting constantly at the rear and ever defending his people. He was never the first, but always the last to encamp. And though the others went to rest at midday or at the evening, the Count often did so at midnight or when the rooster crowed. At length, through the compassion of God, the labor of the Count, and the advice of the bishop, the army crossed Slavonia, and we lost no one there from hunger and no one in open battle. 
On that account, I bear witness. God wanted his army to cross Slavonia in order that the brutes who did not know God, upon recognizing the valor and patience of his knights, might either lose something of their wildness or be brought without excuse to God's judgment. And then, after many labors, we came to the king of the Slavonians at Scutari. The count swore friendship with him and gave him a large tribute so that the army might buy or seek necessities and security. But this was a vain expectation, for we did penance enough for the peace we had sought when thereafter the Slavonians, raging in their usual manner, killed our men and took from the unarmed what they could. We sought not vengeance, but a place of refuge. So much about Slavonia. We came to Duras. We believed we were in our own country, thinking that the Emperor Alexios and his satellites were our brothers and aides. But in truth, they, in the manner of lions, attacked a peaceful people who thought nothing of arms. They butchered them in secret places. They stole what they could by night, in the woods, and in villages remote from the camp. Although they raged thus, their leader promised peace. But during the intervals of peace, they killed Pontius Reynold and mortally wounded his brother Peter. And these were most noble princes. However, when an opportunity was presented to us for revenge, we chose to continue the journey, not to avenge our wrongs. On the way, we had letters from the Emperor about peace, about brotherhood, and, as I may also say, about alliance. This, however, was a snare in words. For in front and behind, to right and to left, Turks and Cumans, Uzi, Tanasis, Pechenegs, and Bulgarians were lying in ambush for us. On a certain day, moreover, when we were in the valley of Pelagonia, the Bishop of Lepuy, who, in order to find a more comfortable resting place, had withdrawn a little distance from the camp, was captured by the Pechenegs. They knocked him down from his mule, robbed him, and beat him severely on the head. 
But since so great a pontiff was still necessary to the people of God, through God's mercy, he was saved to life. For one of the Pechenegs, in order to obtain gold from him, protected him from the others. Meanwhile, the noise was heard in the camp, and so between the delay of the enemy and the attack of his friends, he was rescued. When we had come amidst treachery of this fashion to a certain fortress called Busenat, the Count learned that the Pechenegs intended to attack our army in the passes of a certain mountain. Staying in hiding with some of his knights, he came upon the Pechenegs. And after killing several of them, he turned the rest to flight. Meanwhile, pacifying letters from the Emperor reached us. Still, by his evil design, the enemy surrounded us on all sides. When we came to Thessalonica, the bishop was ill and remained in the city with a few men. After this, we came to a certain city, Rusa by name, where, since its citizens were plainly disposed to do us evil, our usual patience was somewhat disturbed. So, taking up arms, we destroyed the outer walls, seized great plunder, and forced the city to surrender. Then, having taken our standards into the city and shouted, Toulouse, which was the battle cry of the Count, we departed. We came to another city called Rodosto, when knights at the Emperor's bidding there sought to carry out his vengeance upon us. Many of them were killed and a quantity of plunder taken. There also the envoys whom we had sent ahead to the Emperor came to us, and having received money from him, promised that everything boded well for us with the Emperor. What more? The message brought by our envoys and those of the Emperor was that the Count, leaving his army behind, should hasten unarmed and with a few men to the Emperor. For they said that Bohemund, the Duke of Lorraine, the Count of Flanders, and other princes begged this of him. Dei Fiera. 
at the height that the Count should hasten to agree with the Emperor about the march to Jerusalem, that the Emperor, having taken the cross, should also become leader in the army of God. In addition to this, they reported that the Emperor had said that he would make all arrangements with the Count, both about themselves and whatever else should be necessary for the journey. They announced furthermore that a battle was imminent and that if the weight of so great a man was lacking, it would probably end in defeat. That the Count should therefore go ahead with a few men, so that when his army should arrive, everything would have been arranged with the Emperor, and there would be no delay for anyone. The Count was eventually won over, and convinced to go ahead of his army, in this instance alone, leaving his guard behind him in the camp. At Sheik, and thus, Constantinople, to Constantinople, unarmed, when he went. Hello. And welcome to History of the Utremer, episode 2.12, Everybody Loves Raymond. Today, we'll be talking about Raymond, Count of Toulouse. This is the first of a series of episodes we'll be doing focusing on the future Utremer rulers, Raymond of Toulouse, Beaumont of Tarento, and the Super Crusader Bros, Godfrey of Bouillon and Baldwin of Boulogne. Now, I'm not going to try to pretend there's any suspense here. Raymond is going to be one of our first Utremer rulers. Kind of. Raymond will participate on the First Crusade and be one of the key leaders of the Crusading Army. We'll be talking about his motivations in 1095 and 1096 later on today. But what's for sure is that once he arrives in the Levant, he will become determined to seize a piece of it for himself. This will actually bring him into a three-way struggle between him and two of the men mentioned by name in our opening today, Bohemond of Tarento and Alexios Komnenos. Raymond will play an interesting role in their decades-long struggle. We talked about the origins of that struggle last season, in episode 1.13. After the First Crusade ends, well, more or less, pinpointing the end to the Crusade is about as hard as pinpointing its origin, but we'll get there in time. Anyway, after the Crusade ends, as it's usually thought of nowadays, uh, Raymond will spend the last few years of his life attempting to seize the port city of Tripoli. Unfortunately, he will die before succeeding, and a struggle for control of the town will break out between Raymond's illegitimate son Bertrand and his cousin, Guillaume Jordan. But we'll get to that in due time. Today, we're going to talk about Raymond's life leading up to the First Crusade, to get an idea of what kind of fella he actually was, and what might have motivated his decision to take the cross and go east. So who was this Raymond? Well, I quite like the way historians John and Loretta Hill put it in their book, Raymond IV, Count of Toulouse. Quote, Contemporaries, continuators, and critics would write many contradictory things concerning Raymond. We can read that he spent his life fighting neighboring lords as well as Muslims in Spain and the Near East. 
the first to take the watch at night and the last to leave. He was a soldier who struck the fancy of his pagan enemies. Sanji, may God curse him, they wrote in their chronicles as they acknowledged his prowess. His fighting ventures cost him an eye, and later, Muslim states, his life in the flaming timbers of Mount Pilgrim, a haven for travelers to the Holy Land. He is pictured often as greedy, superstitious, irascible, quick to anger, a man who had no desire for a legitimate wife, yet one who shone amidst all the Latins, as the sun amidst the stars of heaven. He was described as a man commendable in all things, a valiant knight, and a devout servant of God. His greed and fanaticism are the subjects of facile pens of the 20th century. Merciless in combat, he ordered his men to cut off the hands and feet of his Slavic prisoners and to scatter their mutilated bodies on the mountainous trails as terrible reminders to their comrades. Certainly, if Raymond deserved all that has been written of him, he represents the stern contrasts of the Middle Ages, the violence of holy war in the midst of sincere religious sentiment. End quote. The inconsistencies that the Hills mention are in part because Raymond suffers a bit from a lack of representation. To figure out why, let's chat a bit about our opening today. It's a direct quote from the first section of Raymond of Aguilé's Historia Francorum Quiqueperunt Jerusalem, History of the Franks Who Took Jerusalem. Technically, the work is attributed to Raymond of Aguilé and a knight named Ponce of Balazun who were both in the service of Raymond, Count of Toulouse. Ponce likely didn't have much or anything to do with the actual writing of the book. He was a close friend of Raymond of Aguilés, and his contribution was likely limited to encouraging his buddy to write the history, and maybe a few additional details here and there. Raymond of Aguilés, on the other hand, was a man of the cloth. During the crusade, he became chaplain to the count, and this gave him a very privileged look at the internal workings of crusader army politics. Though he does have a strange habit of being absent for some very important events, and he also doesn't give any motivations for Raymond's decision to go on the first crusade. In fact, Raymond of Aguilé doesn't even describe the beginning of the crusade. His history starts with what I read in the opening today on the first crusade in Slavonia, in media rest, so to speak. And although he is certainly biased in favor of the count, Raymond of Aguilé has a very religious bent to his writing, and he often chooses to see events as being caused by God. This is not unique to him, but what is a bit different is that unlike other writers such as Albert of Aachen, Raymond of Aguilé doesn't seem to view the Count of Toulouse as an instrument of God, at least not as a particularly special one. If you think about it, this makes sense. Albert of Aachen was writing using the accounts of soldiers who'd served under Godfrey of Bouillon, primarily, and were very loyal to him. Raymond of Aguilé was loyal to the Count, but not in the same way that a soldier would have been. So there is less of the hagiographical descriptions that we get from other writers about Beaumont of Tarento and Godfrey of Bouillon. Instead, we have pieces and scraps. Which in a way is better. Though our picture of Raymond is often less colorful, it's also less distorted. We often have to rely on his actions and actual facts to paint it not the vivid descriptions of his propagandist. And as it turns out, we can learn quite a lot about him if we put all the pieces together. Let's start with the first one, his name. I have been using the name Raymond Count of Toulouse, 
but in his time, he was better known as Raymond of Sanji, or rather, Raimund de Sanjeli, in his native Lengodoc. What is Lengodoc? Well, glad you asked. I still owe you guys a comprehensive discussion of the languages of the Crusading Army, and we'll get there, but one important thing to remember is that the term language and dialect are not universal. There is no actual linguistic definition of what divides a language from a dialect. None. And in the medieval era, the concept was very different from what we might think. It had only been a few centuries earlier that the speakers of what we call Old French had stopped referring to their language as Latin. But they didn't start calling it French until much later. Instead, they called it Romance. Their medieval pronunciation of what in classical Latin would have been Romanique, which is an adverb, and means roughly Romanly, in the Roman way. The idea being that they, as the linguistic descendants of the native Latin speakers of the Western Roman Empire, pronounced Latin in the Roman way. Non-native speakers pronounced Latin the same way that non-native speakers of English sometimes do. They might try to pronounce the K and the GH in night, or they might try to pronounce the two I's in writing with the same sound. With the spread of the Carolingian Empire, this more phonetic pronunciation also spread. And more and more, native Latin speakers began to think of themselves as speakers of romance. But this change started in the region where Old French was spoken, and took its sweet time to spread throughout the Latin-speaking world. Old French is also a complicated term. It's an anachronistic term for a collection of similar dialects out of which modern French evolved, as well as a few other closely related languages, all spoken in, roughly speaking, northern France. In southern France, the Latin there developed quite differently as distinct from French as all the Romance languages are from each other. The Romance languages of Western Europe are often grouped together by their word for yes. Latin has no word for yes. You usually just repeat the verb. If someone asks if you like pizza, you just say basically, I do. So the Romance languages developed their own ways of saying yes in just one quick syllable. But they didn't exactly agree on the results. Medieval folks noticed this difference and commented on it. These ended up being informal groupings that were likely spoken about earlier, but which we first find direct written evidence of in the writing of Dante Alighieri, who lived during the 13th century. In a treatise called De Vulgari Eloquentia, on vulgar eloquence, vulgar here just meaning normal or common, Dante said, Nam ali oc, ali si. Ali vero dicunt oil. Thus, some oc, some si, and indeed some say oil. These are the three ways of saying yes in the Romance varieties of Western Europe. Oil, originally from the Latin phrase hoc illud, roughly, this is it, eventually became the French word oui. In the Iberian and Italian peninsulas, people still say si or something similar from the Latin word seek, meaning thus or in this way. But in what is now mostly southern France and part of northeastern Spain, people said oc, from the Latin word hoc, meaning that. And this made them stand out. 
Thus, as the term Romance spread from northern France down into southern France and into Iberia, becoming the common term for any vernacular modern version of Latin, as opposed to the fossilized written form used by the church. In southern Gaul, this unique usage of oc also became something of a marker. People referred to these various dialects as lenga de oc, or lenga doc, the language of oc. And this name eventually became associated with an entire chunk of southern Gaul, still known to this day as Languedoc in French. Languedoc was also Latinized as lingua occitana, and then borrowed back as Occitan. Nowadays, we refer to the various Romance dialects of this region as Old Occitan, just like Old French, an anachronistic term, and an umbrella term. Old Occitan is what we call the common ancestor of a whole branch of the Romance languages, the Occitano-Romance languages. And within this family, the lines between dialect and language get real, real, real blurry. Nowadays, the most widely spoken member of this family is by far Catalan, spoken mostly in eastern Spain. Apart from Catalan, most of the other Occitano-Romance languages are usually called Occitan in English, even if they can be as distinct from each other as Spanish and Portuguese, for example. Throughout history, the regional names of Limousin, Languedocian, Gascon, and especially Provençal have all been used as synonyms of Occitan, and Old Occitan is often known as Old Provençal as well. I'll probably use Languedoc, Occitan, and Provençal interchangeably to refer to the medieval varieties. How Catalan or something like Old Catalan fits into all this is another complicated discussion that we won't be getting into. While Occitan was once the most common language in southern France, starting with the French Revolution, the linguistic diversity of France began to be viewed as a threat to its union, and targeted campaigns to eradicate regional languages have mostly succeeded. The Occitano-Romance languages are the missing piece between the Romance languages of Iberia and French. They have some qualities in common with both, but also their own distinct flavor. For a bit of an example, I'm going to read Article 1 of the Declaration of Human Rights, first in English, so you know what it says, then Spanish, then I'll play a recording of it in the variety of Occitan spoken in modern Languedoc, known as Lengolusia. Shout out to the YouTube channel I Love Languages, which is where I'm taking this recording from. And then I'll read it in French. Anyway, here we go. Remember, the order is English, Spanish, Occitan, Languedocien, and then French. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience, and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. Todos los seres humanos nacen libres e iguales en dignidad y derechos, y dotados como están de razón y conciencia, deben comportarse fraternalmente los unos con los otros. Todos los seres humanos nacen libres e iguales en dignidad y en derechos, son dotados de razón y de conciencia, y calca digan los unos a los otros a un espíritu de fraternidad. Todos los seres humanos nacen libres e iguales en dignidad y en derechos, Ils sont doués de raison, de conscience, et doivent agir les uns envers les autres dans un esprit de fraternité. As I mentioned, modern Occitan is highly endangered, so if we've spent quite a while talking about it today, it's partly because I don't think it gets enough attention. 
but it's also because this linguistic identity is key to understanding certain aspects of Raymond of Saint-Gilles' behavior before, during, and after the First Crusade. It's easy to describe Raymond as a southern Frenchman, as I have done on occasion, and this is true in a roundabout geographical sense, but it's also misleading in the sense that it elides his Languedocian identity. Around the time of the First Crusade, Old Occitan was developing a distinct literary culture. It was, in fact, the first Romance language to do so. Through the writings and performances of troubadours, Old Occitan laid the groundwork for the epic Romance poems that would later be composed in Old Spanish and Old French. The tropes that would eventually lead to the term Romance being associated with love, as it is nowadays. Raymond of Saint-Gilles and his Languedoc-speaking army would have found it very hard to communicate with speakers of Old French, and this linguistic divide likely isolated Raymond from the other crusade leaders, who would have been fluent in dialects of Old French, like Norman French, for example. And this linguistic difference speaks to a general divide between what are now northern and southern France. The speakers of Languedoc, usually known as Provençals, were as distinct from the northern French as the Iberians and Italians were. The Norman historian Ralph of Caen wrote that the Provençals differed from other inhabitants of Gaul as much as ducks from chickens. And Ralph was right. There were indeed substantial differences between northern France, centered around Paris, and southern France, le midi, literally the midday, because of an association between the south and the position of the sun at noon. Le Midi bordered on the Mediterranean, and unlike their northern neighbors, even after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, they had managed to hold on to more of the structures that held up trade in the region. As such, they were among the first to benefit economically from the population boom we talked about last time. Le Midi was also one of the regions that wholeheartedly jumped on the peace and truce of God bandwagon, taking them much more seriously than their neighbors. This also ensured a certain level of prosperity for the church and for trade. Over the 10th and 11th centuries, southern France became a pilgrimage hub, connecting the Abbey of Cluny in central France to Rome in Italy, and in Spain to the supposed tomb of St. James the Apostle, known in Spanish as El Apostol Santiago. Now the heart of both El Catedral de Santiago de Compostela and the city Santiago de Compostela, which became a huge destination for pilgrimage. In the 11th century, Le Midi was often dominated by, among some others, the Counts of Toulouse, a family of originally Frankish origin that had established a hereditary dynasty out of a title that had once been a Carolingian appointment, and who, by the 11th century, ruled over an independent county centered around Toulouse, that was only nominally subservient to the Capetian king in Paris. It was only centuries later that the Capetians managed to conquer southern France, but that's a story for another time. Raymond of Saint-Gilles was born around 1041 to the Count of Toulouse, Ponce II, and his third wife, Almodis de la Marche. Now, Almodis was quite a character. Her first marriage had been in 1038, to Hugh IV of Lusignan. They had one son together, Hugh V of Lusignan, who would not only inherit the Lusignan lands, but from his mother, the County of La Marche. We'll be seeing the Lusignans, and many more of Almodice's descendants from her first marriage, again in the future. 
Almodis divorced her first husband, using co-sanguinity as an excuse. That's one of the perks to marrying your cousins, you know. You can get around the whole Catholic no-divorce thing. Well, that and uh, hemophilia. Plus, you can hang a coat off your chin. Quite the party trick. Anyway, just two years after her first marriage, Almodis was married again, this time to Raymond's father, Ponce. This marriage was a bit more successful. The couple had three sons, the second of which was Raymond, and a daughter. The marriage lasted about 13 years before Almodis decided to basically run off and elope with Ramon Berenguer, Count of Barcelona. There is apparently a story that she was abducted by the fleet of the Muslim emir of Tortosa, who was an ally of Ramon. That's likely misrepresenting events, as she agreed to marry Ramon pretty much immediately after, and never tried to run back to her second husband. Almodis and Ramon Berenguer had twin sons, who they named Ramon Berenguer and Berenguer Ramon. Which, what the fuck? They also had a daughter, usually known as Sansa or Sancha sometimes. By the way, I'm calling all these guys Ramon just because that's the version of the name used in modern Catalan, and they were the Counts of Barcelona. In reality, they would have had the same name as their half-brother, Raymond of Saint-Gilles. In Occitan, something like Raimund or Raimond. With well-known figures like Raymond of Saint-Gilles, I'm not going to bother to nativize their names, but with others, it's a bit easier, and it also helps to keep all the repeat names a bit straight. Unfortunately, I haven't been, and I doubt I will be, consistent with a lot of European names. Partially because I read sources in different languages. For this episode, I have some in English, some in French, and some in Catalan, which I'm not at all fluent in, but it's close enough to Spanish and French that I can read it without much difficulty. Even within a language, different books use different naming conventions, so my notes end up using different variants of the same name. Hopefully, it's not too confusing. Anyway, we'll come back to the twins and their sister, Sansa, in a bit. Back in Toulouse, around 1061, Raymond of Saint-Gilles' father died. He left the county of Toulouse, along with various other counties, to his eldest son by Almodis, William, Raymond's older brother, who was reportedly an idiot. But at some point, he had also given Raymond control of the Abbey of Saint-Gilles, and, for some reason, the right to use the title, Count of Saint-Gilles. Maybe the view of William as stupid comes from the fact that his younger brother was a political wunderkind. He would have been around 20 in 1061 when his father died, but he clearly had a mind for politics. Over the following three decades, he used his relatively meager inheritance as the foundation for one of the most powerful states in Gaul, the closest thing to a king that Le Midi had, in all but title. One of the key factors in his rise to prominence was an alliance with the Abbey of Cluny. Charters record a close alliance between Raymond and the Cluniacs, and though we have no direct evidence of it, we can probably assume that Raymond's theological worldview was shaped by the cutting-edge developments of the Cluny tunes, including his stance on holy war. So it should come as no surprise that Raymond would also cultivate a relationship with the reform pope who had gotten his start at Cluny, Gregory VII. Raymond became one of Gregory's fideles beati petri, 
his loose network of lay rulers. In 1074, Pope Gregory started to make preparations to launch a proto-crusade against first the Normans in southern Italy and then the Seljuk Turks in Anatolia, following the disastrous Battle of Manzikert just a few years earlier. The Pope wrote to the Count of Burgundy describing his plans and also included instructions to pass the message along to Raymond of Saint-Gilles. However, for reasons that escape the historical record, Raymond did not participate in this plan. In fact, few did. And as I've mentioned a few times, the whole endeavor fell apart. It's probably not a coincidence that soon after, Raymond was excommunicated by the Pope. Supposedly, he was excommunicated for his consanguineous marriage, but the timing hints that it was for his lack of support for Gregory's wackadoodle holy war. This didn't mean that Raymond was done with the church. He just turned towards local religious leaders, including some of the Pope's enemies. Regardless of his relationship with the Pope, Raymond consistently showed himself to be a fervent defender of church property and more than willing to wield a sword for Christ. Sources indicate that he participated in some of the wars going on in Iberia, wars that were often filed under the title Reconquista, though in reality, these wars were not exclusively fought for religious reasons, and you could find Christians and Muslim allies fighting against another set of Christian and Muslim allies. Raymond's presence in Iberia is unsurprising, given his mother's third marriage had been to the Count of Barcelona. Almodis seems to have worked as a bit of a glue she encouraged her children, from all three of her marriages, to support each other, tying together interests from Lusignan down to Catalonia. However, at some point in the 1070s, Raymond's mother died, and from that moment on, the county of Barcelona fast became a rival to the county of Toulouse, a rivalry that would last centuries. Around the same time, 1075 or so, his mother's third husband, the Count of Barcelona, also died, leaving the county to his twin sons, Raymond's half-brothers, Ramon Berenguer II and Berigen Ramon II. The two men reportedly fought and ended up defying their father's will, which had instructed them to rule together. Instead, they split the county. In 1082, when Ramon Berenguer was murdered while hunting in the woods, all fingers pointed to his twin brother, Berenguer Ramon, who earned the title The Fratricide for this crime. The scandal produced by this fratricide would follow the new Count of Barcelona for the rest of his life, and in 1086, in order to appease the masses, he agreed to share rule of the county with his nephew, his twin son, also named Ramon Berenguer, Ramon Berenguer III. Guys, there are other names. There are tons of other names, like so many. Did they not have, like, baby books? Anyway... Ramon Berenguer III was the son of Ramon Berenguer II and Matilda of Apulia. Matilda was a daughter of the Norman warlord, Robert Giscar of Oteville, and his second wife, Sikelgaita. That means that her half-brother was Bohemond of Tarento. Yes, that's right. One of Ramon Berenguer III's paternal uncles was Raymond of Saint-Gilles and one of his maternal uncles was Bohemond of Tarento. But that's not actually Raymond's only or even closest tie to his future crusading rival. Now, Raymond of Saint-Gilles' first wife is a mystery. We don't even know her name. 
All we know is that she was closely related enough to Raymond for Pope Gregory to excommunicate him using consanguinity as justification, and that the couple had a child at some point in the 1070s, who they named Ramon Berenguer. Psych! They named him Bertrand. Spoiler alert, Bertrand will be the first Count of Tripoli to actually possess the city. But that won't be until 1109, so once again, story for another time. This charge of consanguinity against his parents actually followed Bertrand around, and he was retroactively considered a bastard. If you recall, the same thing had happened to Bohemund. His father's first marriage had been labeled consanguineous and annulled, and Bohemund was retroactively labeled a bastard. Now, Raymond's first wife disappears from the record before 1080, when we hear that Raymond had agreed to a second marriage. Perhaps trying to avoid any other possible accusations of consanguinity, Raymond's second wife was from a very distant family. The Otvilles. He married another Matilde of Otville, this one a daughter of Roger, Count of Sicily, and so, Bohemond's niece. What's more, Raymond actually traveled to Sicily for a lavish wedding thrown in the Norman custom by his father-in-law. Unfortunately, the guest list has not come down to us, so we can only speculate that at some point Raymond met his bride's uncle, the famously burly Bohemond. Bohemond was in Capua in 1079, and then he was spearheading the Norman invasion of the Byzantine Empire in 1081. But maybe he found a spare moment in between to attend his niece's wedding. Who knows? Shortly after the wedding, Raymond and his new bride Matilda returned to southern Gaul, apparently in a ship that Roger of Sicily had had custom-built for the occasion. Raymond continued to engage in the warfare and politicking of the era, focusing particularly on ensuring that the abbeys and churches in his realm were given their due rights and donations, often reversing the aggressive seizing of rights his ancestors had partaken in years earlier. Now, how exactly Raymond came to control all of Toulouse is a bit of a mystery. It's clear that by the 1080s, he likely hoped or even expected to become ruler of all Toulouse and the surrounding area, after his brother William's death. William had not produced a male heir, he'd only had a daughter, Philippa, and Provençal custom was still fiercely agnatic. Brothers almost always took precedence over daughters. In 1085, it appears Philippa was married to Sancho Ramirez, king of Aragon. It has been suggested that she was married to a relatively distant ruler so that she would be unable to press her claim for Toulouse. However, other sources indicate Sancho was already married at this time, so it's hard to know exactly what happened. Whether this marriage was later invented by Raymond to make it seem as though William had intended to disinherit his daughter. A couple years after his daughter's supposed marriage, William is said to have entrusted his brother Raymond with all his possessions, making Raymond the new Count of Toulouse. William is said to have then embarked on pilgrimage, with his half-brother, the fratricide, Berenguer Ramon, and died on the way back from Jerusalem. However, other incidental documents challenge this story. Whatever the truth of it, by 1095, Raymond of Saint-Gilles had definitely become Count of Toulouse. At this time, his realm contained 13 counties. Toulouse, Cahors, Albi, Le Deve, 
Rouergue, Narbonne, Agde, Béziers, Nîmes, Uzet, Gévaudan, Viviers, and Venissin. He also claimed the title Margrave of Provence. Around this time, three important events occurred, which were to have significant consequences for Raymond of Saint-Gilles. The first two were marriages. At some point, Matilde had either died or the two had gotten divorced. We talked about this a bit back in episode 1.8. But in the medieval era, it's hard to study the lives of most women, even noble women, as they tend to just float in and out of the lives of men most histories concern themselves with. In this case, all we know is that Matilde is suddenly absent, and Raymond is marrying once again, for a third time, just like his mom. Raymond's third wife lent credence to his participation in Spanish wars. She was Elvira, the illegitimate daughter of Alfonso VI, King of Leon and Castile. According to Spanish custom, despite her illegitimate status, she would still pass her noble lineage down to her descendants. It's definitely possible that this marriage, which was quite a get for Raymond, was a reward for Raymond's aid in some sort of... Spanish War. Some sources indicate that it was in Spain that Raymond lost his eye. But there is another version of this story we'll be talking about in just a bit. The second important marriage occurred in 1094. It was the marriage of Raymond's niece, Philippa. See, in 1094, Sancho, king of Aragon, died. Now, if he had indeed been Philippa's first husband, it was this event that gave her the opportunity to do what she did next. Marry William IX, Duke of Aquitaine. Aquitaine was a powerful duchy that definitely possessed the resources to wage war against Toulouse. Now in Philippa's name. After all, her father had been the Count of Toulouse. William IX was an ambitious man, and we will be hearing from him again. Oh, and by the way, he was also a poet in Occitan, the first Occitan troubadour, the first romance troubadour, whose work still survives to this day. Anyway, Philippa's marriage meant that Raymond of Saint-Gilles now had two potentially problematic neighbors, Aquitaine and Barcelona. But the third event was about to make all of those concerns fade into the background. On the 27th of November, 1095, Pope Urban gave his famous speech at Claremont. Deus would. The following day, he announced that Ademar, the bishop of the town of Le Puy, who had been the first to take the cross, would serve as the church's representative on the expedition. That same day, ambassadors from Raymond of Saint-Gilles arrived in Claremont and promised that their lord would also be participating. Given the timing, there's no way Raymond didn't have advanced knowledge. There would have been no physical way for news of the speech at Claremont to reach Raymond and then his ambassadors to set out for Claremont in less than like 24 hours. And Raymond, who was in 1095 around 55 years old, had shown throughout his life that he was not a hasty man. The calculated strategy he had put to use during the last 30 years of his life were proof and testament to that fact. Some years earlier, Raymond had personally met Ademar of Le Puy, 
By all accounts, the Count and the Bishop had become friends and allies. In the days leading up to the Pope's speech at Clermont, it was likely Ademar who reached out to Raymond to let him know of the Pope's new holy war. While Raymond had not participated in the last papal holy war, there was something intriguing to him in this new endeavor. It's clear that Raymond now committed himself wholeheartedly to the First Crusade. But why? Maybe he was tired of the complicated struggles of building his lordship in Languedoc? Maybe he was a zealot? Or could he possibly have been seeking revenge for his lost eye? So, the story of how Raymond lost his eye at Jerusalem is recorded by Miko el Suryoyo, Michael the Syrian. Apologies for my Syriac pronunciation, by the way, it's really hard to find any guides on how to pronounce Syriac. But as his name implies, Michael the Syrian was a Syrian, born in Melitene, modern Marataya, in eastern Turkey. And he was a near contemporary of Raymond of Toulouse, born in the mid-1120s, just a few decades after the First Crusade. And he was, for quite a while, about 33 years, a patriarch of the Syriac Orthodox Church, informally known as the Jacobite Church. Now, like the Armenians and the Copts, the Jacobites are not Chalcedonians. That means that their brand of Christianity was never accepted by the Roman Empire. And that also means that, a lot like the Copts, they had an interesting relationship with the Muslim conquerors of the region. Not always a pleasant relationship, but often one that was less complicated than the one that they had with the Byzantines. Conflict between different branches of one religion can get very heated. The other that is closer to us can be a bit more threatening than the other that is more alien and distant. Syriacs by this point uh, actually spoke Arabic, so Michael was most likely a native Arabic speaker, but they did, and continue to, use Syriac as a liturgical language, the way Latin was and is used by Catholics. We've talked about Syriac before. In this context, it is the medieval descendant of a dialect of Aramaic. Aramaic is the language or group of closely related languages slash dialects, depending on the era or analysis, that were once widely spoken throughout the Levant. The historical figure of Jesus Christ and his friends and family would have spoken a variety of Aramaic, very closely related to Syriac, so the language has a lot of religious significance. But Aramaic, and Syriac by extension, is a Semitic language, like Hebrew and Arabic. These similarities were probably what made it easier for Syrians to switch over to Arabic. It wasn't a huge leap like it would have been for the Armenians or even the Copts. Coptic is distantly related to Arabic, they're both Afro-Asiatic languages, but on very distant branches, like the relationship between English and Armenian or English and Persian. So the world Michael occupied was a very interesting one. On the one hand, he spoke Arabic and likely had a lot of cultural similarities with Muslims of the region. But he was a Christian. However, his brand of Christianity was at odds with the Roman imperial branches. Now, just a couple generations earlier, the Byzantine Roman Empire had been expanding into the East. We talked about this back in episode 1.3. There was a good deal of conflict with the Jacobites. 
If you recall, Nikiforos Fokas, yeah, that's a ways back, well, he had made a deal with the Jacobites to settle them in the, at the time, newly conquered Roman provinces in Armenia and Syria. Then he had faced pressure from the Orthodox Church and persecuted them. With this history in play, Jacobites like Michael were very unlikely to see the Byzantines as allies. But when the Franks came to town, even if they were schismatics, the relationship didn't have the same kind of baggage, and many Jacobites, and Eastern Christians in general, saw the new arrivals as potential allies, Michael included. So he has a very positive view of many Franks, including Raymond of Saint-Gilles. Now, Michael wrote a universal history, starting at fucking creation up to his own day. Quite an ambitious fella. He wrote in Syriac, and there is an extant copy of that version from the 16th century. But the original was also translated into Armenian pretty much immediately. This Armenian version is actually a bit more complete, and the copy I have of Michael's work is a French translation of the Armenian version of Michael's Syriac text. In French, it's just called Chronique de Michel de Grand, and it was translated in 1866 by Victor Langlois. Now, I am translating that French version myself into English, so this is a real game of telephone here. And there's one type of word that this game of telephone really distorts. Names. In his native, Lingovoc, Raymond would have been called something like Raimond or Raimund de saint Geli. In most non-European languages, only the saint Geli part was used, and it was adapted to the native phonology. So Anakomnini calls him Isangelis in Greek. And in Arabic, he's known as Sanjil. Michael similarly adapted Sanjali to Syriac, pronouncing it something like Zenjil. So with all that preamble, here's how Michael introduces not only Zenjil, but the entire First Crusade. Quote, Around this time, when the Turks were masters of Jerusalem and the entire coastline, a Frankish prince named Zenjil came to the holy city to complete a pilgrimage. The Turks asked him for a tahigan, a gold coin, as they were accustomed to do for every pilgrim. Then they demanded more, and upon his refusal, they hit him on the head so hard that his right eye popped out of its socket. Zenjil picked it up, put it in his pocket, and took it to Rome, where he had it displayed, inciting everyone to vengeance. Some counts decided to depart, and having gathered numerous troops, they came to Constantinople, which they besieged for seven years. In the seventh year, an earthquake knocked down one of the bastions of Antioch and uncovered bronze equestrian statues that bore a striking resemblance to the Franks. These statues were brought to the emir, who summoned the whole city to find out what this could mean. Some said that they were ancient idols. The emir gave the order to break them and to scatter the pieces, which was carried out. An old blind woman, having learned what had happened, claimed that they were talismans made with the aid of magical means by the Greeks, so that the Franks could not come from the other side of the sea. For you all saw well, she said, that these statues were attached with iron chains. 
The emir to whom these words were reported was very angry that he'd had these statues broken. The Frankish army, after having quickly subjected Constantinople, crossed the Bosporus and marched on Antioch, which they seized. End quote. Michael goes on to describe the rest of the First Crusade mostly in line with other sources, but it's that beginning part that's really interesting. Because Michael's version of events is drastically different from Western accounts of how the Crusade started. But there are some similarities we can tease out. Michael's story about how Raymond decided to go on crusade after having difficulty during a pilgrimage to Jerusalem is strangely reminiscent of Albert of Aachen's story. If you recall from episode 2.7, Albert says that Peter the Hermit decided to kickstart the crusade after encountering difficulty during his pilgrimage. That's also Anacomini's take. And the only contemporary Muslim account to mention a direct Frankish casus belli, that of Aladimi, also connects an interrupted pilgrimage in the early 1090s with the arrival of the Franks. Clearly, in the East, the origins for the Crusade were closely associated with pilgrimage. This perception tracks with the language used by the Crusading army itself. Even if, as we discussed back in episode 2.6, it wasn't necessarily the original arrangement as conceived by Pope Urban II or Alexios Komnenos. For a Jacobite Christian like Michael, viewing the crusade as stemming from pilgrimage made sense for a few reasons. One, that was the primary point of contact between the East and Latin Franks. For centuries now, ever-increasing amounts of Latin pilgrims had made their way east. So for Eastern Christians, and everyone else in general, there would have been an association between pilgrimage and Franks, as the vast majority of Franks that they'd met were pilgrims. And two, it was also something that reaffirmed a shared Christian faith. Many Franks, including fellows like Raymond, would have wanted to stress this aspect to cultivate support from locals. So the story of Zengiel losing his eye fighting abusive Turks while on pilgrimage and then returning with his eye in his pocket in search of revenge, well, that easily could have been propaganda from the Provencal army or local allies, perhaps mixing in elements that had come from tales about Peter the Hermit. This perspective also explains why Michael portrays the Franks as enemies of Byzantium. He even says the Greeks had used magic to attempt to prevent the arrival of the Franks, and that a seven-year-long siege had taken place at Constantinople, only ending when a foolish Muslim emir smashed the Greek magic statues, sealing not only the Greeks, but his own doom. This story ignores any possibility of a Frankish-Roman alliance. It was clearly tailored to Eastern Christian audiences, to paint men like Zengil in the best light possible. The idea of a seven-year-long siege at Constantinople is clearly fictional, though. And in reality, the relationship between Raymond of Saint-Gy, the crusading army in general, and Alexios Komnenos was way more complicated than simple conflict. We'll be getting to that in the future, though. Still, Michael the Syrian is actually the only source, I believe, that gives us any motivation for Raymond's decision to crusade. As I mentioned, Raymond Vaguilet, who was traveling with the Count and should be a great source, starts in the middle of the journey, through Slavonia. And we're lacking such basic information as the date when he left. We have to piece together his preparations and departure from other sources. So here's what we know. 
Raymond of Saint-Gilles, left late. The Pope had fixed the departure date for August 15th, the Feast of the Assumption, after the beginning of harvest, when supplies would be plentiful. Raymond can't have left until October, probably late October, two months late. This was likely not due to laziness on his part, but the difficulty in coordinating the endeavor. By all accounts, his force was large, but also well-equipped and supplied. He left his eldest son, Bertrand, in charge of Toulouse. Now, as I mentioned, Bertrand is often considered a bastard by contemporaries and later historians. Remember that Bertrand was a son of Raymond's first marriage, which had been labeled consanguineous and had led to Raymond's excommunication. So Raymond had to have known that Bertrand would be no match against William of Aquitaine, who, after marrying Raymond's niece, had a firm claim to Toulouse. The Duke of Aquitaine had also been asked to participate in the crusade, in fact. Pope Urban spent Christmas of 1095 with the Duke, trying to convince him. But William had refused. For two reasons. One, he was hoping his new marriage would produce him a male heir. And two, he knew Raymond of Saint-Gilles, king of Le Midi in all but name, would be gone. It might never return. It was the perfect opportunity to attack Toulouse. Raymond of Saint-Gilles knew all these things. Yet, he still left. What could he have been thinking? If we examine his life, we can see that he was really pious. He seems to have taken the peace and truce of God movement seriously. That's not surprising. Le Midi was one region where they had really caught on. Politically, perhaps he felt his participation would cement an alliance with the reform papacy. Maybe he remembered his excommunication the last time he had refused to participate in one of these holy wars. Maybe his plan was always to settle in the East. If he had fought in Spain, maybe he'd seen the value of using religious wars to carve out new territories. We have no indication that he actually made a pilgrimage at any point, but many of his friends and relatives had, so the wealth of the East was something he would have been acquainted with. Some contemporary sources report that Raymond of Saint-Gilles made an oath to never return to Toulouse. Whether he made the oath or not, he never would. When he left, he was accompanied by his wife, Elbida, and Ademar of Lepuy. They would not be returning either. He was also accompanied by his nephew, Guillaume, also known as Guillaume Jordan, for reasons we'll talk about in the future. Guillaume was the son of Raymond's half-sister, Sansa, daughter of Almodis and Ramon Berenguer. Sansa had married the Count of Cerdaña in Catalonia, and around 1075, the couple had a son, Guillaume, or William in its anglicized form. Guillaume will become important later on. He's gonna claim the right to the county of Tripoli in 1105, when his uncle Raymond dies. Here's the thing though, it's unclear if he actually left with Raymond in 1095, or if he left later on. Jonathan Riley Smith, who's done the most extensive study into listing all known crusaders, lists him as a near-certain participant. But he may have joined later. He doesn't really make a name for himself until 1105, though, so it's hard to know for sure. Similarly, Jonathan Riley Smith also includes two of Raymond's brothers on the list of near certain crusaders. These are Hugh V of Lusignan, son of Almolis's first marriage, and Berenguer Ramon, the fratricide. Obviously looking to get some more points to maybe get into heaven after killing his twin brother. But it's unclear if they left in 1096 with Raymond, or 
in 1101 on the Reinforcement Crusade, which we'll be talking about in the future. Anyway, back in October of 1096, Raymond's army took a land route from southern Gaul east and then down the eastern Adriatic coast. This is where Raymond of Aguilera's account picks up. According to this account, Raymond of saint was a capable and ruthless leader, cutting the hands off Slavic prisoners to scare the bejesus out of any other raiders. They continued down the coast to Duras, also known in Italian as Durazzo, in Latin as Durachium, and in Greek as Durachion. I've been very inconsistent about the name of this city in particular. Sorry about that. Once at Duras, as Raymond of Aguilera says, they expected to be welcomed with open arms by the Roman imperial forces. But they soon ran into the same troubles that had plagued the armies of the Peasants' Crusade. Now, Raymond of Aguilet blames the duplicitous Greeks and their evil emperor. But he's likely leaving out the nature of the Provençal army's passage through imperial territory. We also have to remember that this was not the first crusading army to pass through the region. Memories of what had happened during the Peasants' Crusade likely colored these interactions as well. Raymond of Aguilet reports that they were harassed by the nomadic steppe troops the Romans kept in these borderlands, singling out the Pechenegs in particular. As I mentioned back in episode 2.10, though the Romans themselves were Christians, their armed forces were very diverse and likely alien to the Franks, even more so than the Greeks. The Franks also likely weren't a highly organized force. Raymond puts all the blame on the locals, but he can't escape the fact that the Provencal forces sacked the city. He says it was because the inhabitants clearly wished the army evil, but he's obviously got a bit of a bias there. As I said back in episode 2.10, there really wasn't too much of a difference between the so-called Peasants' Crusade and the so-called Prince's Crusade. It's likely that Raymond of saint gilles forces were belligerent and aggressive towards the locals, and that this attitude led to conflict. Still, the mere fact that the army made it to Constantinople at all shows that Alexios was prepared for dealing with the Army of the Cross. Sure, there had been casualties on both sides. And the Pope's representative, Ademar of Lepuy, did get injured. But the Romans were used to herding angry migrant armies around, and it's clear from Raymond of Aguilea's account that the imperial forces kept the Provencal forces in check the whole time. When they finally arrived at Constantinople, though, Everyone probably breathed a sigh of relief. And even if the journey had been rough, and he had been angered by the attacks on his army, Raymond of Saint-Gilles still clearly saw Alexios Komnenos as an ally. Enough so to agree to travel to Constantinople on his own. What exactly he expected to happen is uncertain. But let's review his position in April of 1097, as he entered the court of the Vasilefs, Alexios Komnenos. The army Raymond had at his back was probably the largest force of the First Crusade. However, though Raymond was the leader, he was not a direct commander of all the forces under his banners. Various other vassals and Languedoc nobles had joined up. Raymond was the most powerful and the wealthiest, but he was not omnipotent. His force also contained large contingents of poor pilgrims and clergymen like Ademar and his chronicler, uh, Raymond of Aguilet. Raymond, however, felt that his friendship with Ademar, and perhaps the fact that the Pope had reached out to him personally, were justification for his supremacy, not only within his army, but for the crusading army as a whole. He was about to be disappointed. 
his encounters with Roman imperial forces had already ticked him off. But he was about to walk into a situation as politically complex as any he'd left behind in Toulouse. By April, most of the other potentates of the crusading army had already arrived. Count Hugh of Vermandois, brother to the French king, Duke Godfrey of Bouillon, and Raymond's former uncle-in-law, Bohemond of Tarento. Whatever pretensions Raymond held of being the head of the crusading army were shattered. See, all the leaders had already sworn oaths of fealty to Alexios Komnenos. Raymond's ultimate authority came from his privileged relationship with Ademar of Lepuy, the Pope's representative. But Ademar was recovering from his injuries and had not come with him to Constantinople. And now it seemed that the Pope himself had been superseded by the conniving Greek emperor. But the emperor was going to need a representative in this army. And when Raymond saw the ease with which Bowman chatted in Greek with Roman officials, and his own relatives in the emperor's court, the Count of Toulouse read between the lines, this Norman was going to be trouble. Next time on History of the Utremer, we're going back to southern Italy to catch up with Bohemond of Tarento. It's been just shy of a decade since his invasion of the Roman Empire, and now Bohemond's on his way back, this time as an ally. Or at least, that's what the tricky Norman says 